Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. On this episode of Most Notorious, America's first female serial killer, Jane Toppin. Yeah, I think that she realized that it wasn't just the torture that she enjoyed, but actually taking life as well. Like she liked being in control of people living and dying. That's why she liked to push them to almost death and then bring them back. But also deliberately taking someone's life evidently gave her some kind of thrill or satisfaction. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. We're back again, together, to explore another historical murderer. So Mary Kay McBrayer joins me today. She is co-founder and co-host of a podcast called Everything Trying to Kill You, where she analyzes horror movies. And the book she is here to talk about today is called America's First Female Serial Killer, Jane Toppin and the Making of a Monster. Great to have you on. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here and to talk to you about our monster. Yes, I'm excited too. So what first turned you on to the subject of Jane Toppin? So Jane's story uh, stands out to me for several reasons, but um, I, I like we were talking just before we started recording, and I love anything about gangsters. I love anything that's a good underdog story. I think I really appreciate, and that's what stood out to me the most about hearing about her because I heard her story first on a podcast, which I'm sure your listeners will know, uh, My Favorite Murder. And if you've heard the show, then you know it's mostly comedy in like some facts. Um, But as they were telling the story, I just remember thinking, okay, but that can't be all there is to it. Because the the very first part of her story is like, the documented part is that her father surrendered Jane and her sister to the Boston Female Asylum, which was essentially an orphanage. 
And then uh, because he was at Taylor and, and he, he lost his mind and um, tried to sew his eyelids shut. And I just remember thinking like, okay, well, anyone like that, that just that sequence of events alone is enough to traumatize someone forever. Like if you were old enough to remember, or even if you didn't remember it. And I just remember thinking like, I need to know more about all of hers, all of her story, because I just, there, she had so many odds set against her. And I also think it's interesting that like a lot of people have odds set against them and they don't kill 30 people. I mean, I, I just was really interested in the idea that, um, or for, and the, in her as a person, because she went through so much at such an interesting period in history and that she didn't have to ha- become this kind of monster. Like there was definitely a, some, m- maybe not moment, but gradual escalation that led to her becoming this serial killer rather than, you know, a really successful person in another field. So I think that's what originally turned me on to her story. So, yeah, you already talked a bit about her early life. Uh, I know there isn't a lot out there about it. What do we know about her first few years in the world? Um, You're exactly right. Uh, What we do know is based on very fragmented accounts uh, from the orphanage mostly, and then a a more fact-heavy book uh, that I referenced a lot is by Harold Schechter, which I'm sure that all of your listeners know of him and are as obsessed with him as I am because he just, he, he's the talking head, right. In every documentary, like he knows the most and he just seems like the person that you would find at a cocktail party back when we could have cocktail parties and and you would just, you you know, just want to hang like next to him to hear what he was talking about. So a lot of what we do know was found and compiled by him. And some of that is uh, the record of her parents' immigration from Ireland. The the number of siblings she had is not clear at different records, say four and two. And then some of them list the same name for a child. So I feel like there's some sort of discrepancy there. We know that her mother died when Jane was very young of tuberculosis and her father was a single father and he was a tailor to two or four children at a really, you know, at the turn of the century, which was uh, just a really rough time for everyone, but especially Irish immigrants because they were blatantly discriminated against, like legally and, and individually. And we also know that she was after she was at the Boston female asylum, she was an indentured servant and that she was indentured out several years before the typical age when one would be indentured out. So basically, and and looking at it from a very business-like perspective, um, whoever indentured her got a lot more for their money than they would have. Otherwise, we also know she was a really precocious kid um, so she was very smart and she, it, it really was important to her that people liked her and wanted to be around her. So she was kind of awesome, like kind of the life of the party when she was a kid, but she would get in trouble for telling lies when really she was telling stories. But we also know that she was born Honora Kelly, which is like the most Irish name and her foster family, uh, made her change her name to Jane and 
gave her their last name but never adopted her. So it's like a series of cascading failures on behalf of this society that Jane lived in where they just, you know, had opportunity after opportunity to let her shine and didn't. And I think that has a lot to do with not not everything of course to do with who she became, but I don't see how that could not be a part of it if that makes sense. It does, yeah. What was the family dynamic like in the Toppen household? Oh, so pretty terrible. Um, You had your matriarch, which was Mrs. Toppen, or as Jane was required to call her, auntie. And then you had Elizabeth, who was treated as though she was about the same age as Jane and kind of looked like she was the same age as Jane. So she looked like, you know, 12, 14 but she was actually much older, like 15 years. I can't remember the exact age uh, offhand, but like, significantly older than Jane. But they were, uh, but Elizabeth considered her a sister. That's the Elizabeth Toppin. And then Brigham, after she married uh, the deacon of the local church. And not very much is said about Mr. Toppin. So different records say uh, that he either was, you know, working a lot or died before or shortly after Jane was indentured there. Um, And they were a wealthy family, the Toppins. I mean, wealthy enough to afford to be able to support another person who was taking care of their house, another child. And um, Elizabeth was definitely the, the favored child, especially because they never formally adopted Jane to the point that they, when she aged out, like, so her indenture ended, so she turned 18 and she just kind of got the money that she, that Auntie promised the Boston Female Asylum she would give her and a new set of clothes. And she was like, okay, so you can stay here if you want, but you don't have to. <laughs> I was like, well, what else am I going to do? Like, they didn't set her up to do anything else um, independently. Like, all she knew was domestic labor and stuff. And I just feel like... And, and based on research as well, and based on like personal experience, like that would not go over well with someone who worked their ass off all the time. I'm sorry, can I swear on this? I forgot to ask you that. <laughs> um, no one has ever asked me that before. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> fire away. <laughs> okay. Um, well, to someone who worked really hard and, and none of her merit was rewarded, that would just be really frustrating Especially when you were trying, like, these are the only people that you interact with on a regular basis. So they're the the ones whose opinion you care about the most, you know? And I couldn't, I can't imagine that not making someone resentful. Like, I know it takes a special person to to forgive and to, to forgive people who don't want to be forgiven. But it makes me mad kind of thinking about it, you know? Like, we, this... Especially then, I mean, we know now it's a little bit more nuanced than this, but America was supposed to be the place where you could come and get a fresh slate. And if you worked really hard, you did really well. And that's really not what happened here at all. Right. So as as you mentioned, Mrs. Toppin pays her off at the end of her indentured servitude term, Mm -hmm. tells her she can stay or she can go. What happens next? What does she do? So she stays on for between 10 and 12 years, depending on the records, which is a long time. And even nowadays, starting a new career in your late 20s 
is kind of risky, like even now. And then, you know, the life expectancy was so much shorter than it is now. And she was a woman and she was working class that like starting a new profession was very uncommon, but she did because she could. So, and this is another thing, speaking of the family dynamics you asked about before, not only did auntie never adopt her, but she didn't leave her anything in her will, even though she was like all she knew of a mother. And, and then several years after that, after she continued to serve with the Brighams, which is her foster sister and her, and Elizabeth's husband. So she decided after, after staying on with the Brighams for a while that she was going to nursing school and she got accepted to two of the of the really prestigious nursing schools in the in the Boston, Massachusetts area, Cambridge and Massachusetts General, I believe, are the two. Um, and I, I forgive me, I can't remember which one she went to first, but she did everything there except for except for graduate, essentially, and then decided to go to the other one. And then the same thing happened there, and then she went into private nursing, um, which is when our you know, festivities sort of begin, but that's kind of the trajectory is like in her, in her adulthood, really, she decided she wanted a career change. And I know that now we are finally appreciating nurses for the heroes that they are. They truly are just some of the like most overworked and underpaid and totally essential people in our culture. And then the the patient load would have been much higher and it would have been a really an I mean a, an equally dangerous job to have because then it was like they barely knew they needed to wash their hands. Like I know that we're reteaching a lot of people that they need to wash their hands, but then they were just kind of like, I don't understand why this person has hospitalism, which is what they basically called bacterial infections from not disinfecting their instruments because they just they didn't know. So she would have had all of that, the health risks, had a ton of extra patients. And largely what she did was like custodial work. So on on top of the nursing duty. So it was a really hard job. I mean, you could make good money doing it, but it was long hours and hard work. And then she was like, well, I'm going to do private nursing then because I can. Everyone loves me, which they did. All of the doctors were obsessed with her. I'm not, not in a gross way, but they were just like, no, put Jane on with with me because she knows what she's doing but her patients were scared of her and they kept reporting her for good reason and she's like I'll just be a private nurse then and she took all of her character references and would would work kind of in homes with not not exactly hospice care but similar to that like when the elderly got sick she would she would work in she would live and work in their homes if that makes sense sure so that was kind of the next step career wise right why were her patients uh, frightened of her? So in the hospital, she was overheard by several nurses saying, and this is actually documented that the complaints are, that um, there was no point in keeping elderly people alive. And so her the nurses would overhear that and the, her patients would overhear it. And that, I mean, they would report it because they were, they were scared and then which is totally understandable and reasonable and they also were afraid of her because well a lot of her patients died and like granted based on the 
on the circumstances we were just talking about, a lot of patients died in hospitals for other reasons, but like a lot of hers died. And then I don't want to go into too much detail about Amelia Finney, but she's basically what, you know, sealed the case against Jane because she was a surviving victim, which I think she, she, she may not have been the only one, but she was the only one that testified, which I just feel like is a big heroic move too, because this is like the Victorian era for someone to, to it, to like, I mean, it's hard enough now, right. To come forward and say like, Oh, this terrible thing happened to me when people would blame you for it. But like in the Victorian time, that was, you had to be very, very strong to do that, I think. So that's why they were scared of her. Yeah. What did she accuse Jane of doing to her? So she didn't actually accuse her of anything because, I mean, it's sort of like what we were seeing and are seeing now. Um, you can't unsay something. Like if you accuse someone, you have to really double down on it and be ready to go all in. So she didn't ever, she didn't do that until much later when other people or really when um, the detectives arrested her uh, much later after the entire Davis family died. Um, and then she came forward and she was like, oh yeah, she was my nurse and this crazy thing happened. But basically what happened is um, she came into the hospital for an ulcer to be removed um, on her uterus. And she was understandably in a lot of pain. And Jane, um, and this was kind of her M.O., she administered morphine, which we still even use now, right, for extreme pain. But what Jane would do is overdose her patients on morphine and get them very close to death. And then she would bring them back or try to bring them back with atropine. So it was a very morbid and disgusting scientific experiment on people who, I mean, it was torture, she tortured them basically, or actually she tortured them. And, and it, she tricked a lot of the doctors because, you know, they would have seizures or stroke or heart failure and the doctors would come in and, and the side effects for morphine and atropine are opposite. So they couldn't tell what uh, had happened to the patient. And that's essentially what happened to Amelia Finney. So she got, uh, Jane gave her something to drink, um, which is part of her MO. She would put it in mineral water because mineral water is bitter. So it would disguise the effect of, or not disguise the effect, the disguise the taste of um, atropine and, mor- and morphine. And, and it wasn't always orally administered. Sometimes she would inject them if they were already unconscious, et cetera. Or um, enemas is what she did later on, which is even more disturbing. Um, but then she would um, observe the effects of of uh, the morphine and the atropine and how they um, interacted with one another as the patient was going in and out of consciousness um, and document it. And Amelia Finney kind of realized what was happening and she, she was like, no, I'm not going to take any more medicine. And she remembered Jane getting into bed with her. And, and like laying there with her and, and molesting her while she couldn't move because she was overdosed. So that's what Amelia Finney testified. And that's essentially because she was one of the only surviving victims, even though they had plenty of evidence that she was killing people, that that's one of the main things that like the, the 
the testimonies that sealed her, um, the verdict against her. So when we come back from this quick break, Jane begins to kill. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Rivas Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Rivas Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. And we are back. So do you believe that Jane's experience in the hospital, the things she got away with, emboldened her, uh, gave her courage to do even more extreme things? I really do. I think that her behaviors escalated the more that she, like you said, got away with it. And just, you know, once she kind of mastered one, the natural thing to do is to move to the next step up. I mean, we we see that in very positive ways too. Like yesterday I ran one mile today. I'm going to run 1.1 miles. You, you set kind of goals for yourself as more, as terrible as that sounds. But like we see with so many other killers who, who have murdered people on this scale, it starts off kind of small and then it, you know, the behaviors gradually become more and more risky. 
And by the end, she gets real sloppy. It's, it's like, okay, well, all of these, this whole family died within a month, girl. What, how are you thinking you're going to get away with this? But um, to, <laughs> to your, to answer your question, yeah, I think the hospital definitely would have influenced that because although these drugs were available over the counter, which is totally bananas to me, like you could get strychnine, ch- chocolate covered strychnine over the counter. Like I was looking, (laughs) it's just doing research is so fun because you just, you find things that you never would have thought to look at. Like when you go deep into the wormhole of like, okay, so this is where her confession was. And like next to it was an advertisement for strychnine Yeah, and you can get morphine over the counter. And I'm not sure about atropine, but I do know that, um, how to administer those drugs would have, would have been in the in the realm of the medical expertise. So although they were more accessible, how to use them was probably something she learned in the hospital. Plus, I mean, if her philosophy was, well, this person's going to die soon anyway, I'm, I'm going to, you know, learn all I can from them. And so I think it, it seems like it cascaded almost into a mercy from a mercy killing into an, experiment into torture is what it seems like. And you mentioned this this element of possible sexual gratification as well. Yes. So that is one of the most upsetting things is that when, while Jane was experimenting on these people or her patients and they would go into convulsions, she would get in the bed with them and, like you said, molest or... Um, there was definitely that element of sexual gratification that was confirmed by Amelia Finney's testimony. So what was her first uh, documented murder? Who was the victim and how did it happen? So the first one is kind of dicey because she, she never really confessed to all of her murders because she didn't, she, she, I mean like so many killers that we know it's like no you figure it out you figure out how smart i was but also i think she kind of forgot slash they may have died from other things caused by her torture so the first one i'm not confident about who that was but i know they were her patients in uh, i believe cambridge hospital so the very first i'm not sure um but it would have been one of her patients and probably one that she liked a lot because that she liked to keep them there if she liked them. So she'd make them sicker. So once she leaves the hospital, things begin to escalate. Where does she go? What does she do? So from the hospital, because she got dismissed without uh, gra- or getting her nursing certificate from either one. So she went to school for much longer, but never actually got her certificate in hand. But she did have all of the recommendations from the doctors and any, any ad- administrator recommended her as well. From there, she went into the private nursing and she tried a couple of other things and failed. Uh, for example, she wanted to manage... Uh, basically the cafeteria at a seminary school nearby. The name is escaping me at the moment. but So she poisoned her friend and 
uh, when that woman died, she went to the person hiring and said, well, one of her last wishes was for me to take over her job. <laughs> and then she did, and she was terrible at it because she'd never done anything like that before. So she tried that. She went back into private nursing. She also ran up huge debts, uh, particularly when she would go uh, spend her summers on Cape, Cape Cod at, at Buzzards Bay with the Davis family. She, um, they, they would let her, her stay there at a discounted rate because they liked her so much and you know their other patrons felt really comfortable when having a medical professional on hand. Um, but she ran up a huge debt there and, and was just like, oh yeah, I'll get you next time and then never did. <laughs> so that's where she went next and she uh, was known for like petty theft from her patients but again because it was a Victorian time like no one would accuse her of that especially because uh, they were supposed to be grieving and listeners I don't know if y'all know this but there was a whole death and funeral and grieving subculture in the Victorian time which is just fascinating like the politics of a funeral at that time like they would hire professional mourners and um, oh, a really fun book to read if you're into this and I know I said fun and well y'all know what I mean the Victorian book of the dead has like a, a bunch of interviews with undertakers at the time and 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 so it was just it was gauche to be like did you steal this from my mom when it's <laughs> you know it's not the thing to be worried about at the time yeah so during this time, she still maintains a relationship with her foster sister, right? Yes, um, or somewhat, right? Like it was somewhat fraught, but Elizabeth being, you know, older, but also somewhat childlike. And I don't mean that in in a patronizing way, just like she, she was a fairly sheltered person. So she just kind of was like, I don't know why she's mad at me. I didn't do anything, which, I mean, she didn't really do anything to Jane. It was more of a circumstance thing that happened at Jane. But they corresponded. And yeah, so uh, Elizabeth was, and I don't know if this is about to be a spoiler, so <laughs> skip it if you don't want to know. Um, sure. But she, uh, Elizabeth was one of the victims, but one towards the end, once her method had gotten uh, a little cleaner. So she invited Elizabeth to Cape Cod uh, for during the summer because I mean, I'm from the South. I'm sure that y'all can hear that in my voice. So it's always hot here, but in Massachusetts with this, or in Boston and, and the surrounding areas at the time, apparently like the smog would keep the heat in. So everybody would leave over the summer. And Oramel, which is the best name I've ever heard and the only time I've ever heard it, um, Elizabeth's husband was a depot master of the train. So he put her on a train out to Cape Cod and uh, they had a little summer cottage and they were having a nice time. And then um, Elizabeth uh, starts getting sick. And the next morning, um, well, they call Oramel to come and he does. And she dies like within 48 hours because of Jane. So they did have a relationship and then Jane killed her. So, um, that's, that's the one where she says like, it was the first person who I really was happy to watch them actually die and suffer. 
Um, the other people, it was more of a removed scientific experiment torture type of feeling for Jane. But in her confession, which if I'm sure and no one has told, I mean, this can't be like corroborated by evidence, but it seems very editorialized, um, her confession. It just doesn't match up with like the, what, what she says, the way she says it doesn't match up with what she did. So I guess we can take that with a grain of salt, but it is um, a very harrowing line from her confession that where she's like, yeah, I, I watched with delight as she gasped out her life. Like it's very upsetting. So yeah, it definitely feels like that's kind of what Jane crescendoed into is killing Elizabeth. So she suddenly discovered the joy of killing um, certain people anyway. Yeah, I think that she realized that it wasn't just the torture that she enjoyed, but actually taking life as well. Like she liked being in control of people living and dying. That's why she liked to push them to almost death and then bring them back. But also deliberately taking someone's life evidently gave her some kind of thrill or satisfaction or both. Yeah. You said earlier that her poisoning methods streamlined over time. What did you mean by that? How how did she become more efficient? So there's a couple of ways. She, She started with people who were already sick, for one, which doesn't really give you a control group. You know, because they, they already have things that they're being treated for or need to be treated. Um, and then she graduated into overdosing someone and then giving them, it's not really a can, an antidote, but an adjacent sort of combating poison, <laughs> essentially. And she, her, her method of administration got more efficient as well. So she would do injections and not just dissolving a pill in mineral water. Uh, she also administered enemas that contained the, the same drugs or additional ones um, once the person was sick. So she could toy with someone who was, who was poisoned, who she had poisoned for several days before ending their life. And that they're, And in that comes a sort of meticulousness with the amount of medicine that they are given. Um, And she got good at hiding it, too, in the the same way. Wow. I know. So, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Pretty despicable. She's the worst. So we obviously won't have time to get into the full details of every murder she committed. Mm -hmm. They are in your book, and readers can get the full details there. But I definitely want to ask you about the Davis family, if you don't mind. Can you share with us how she met the Davis family, Um, Yeah, how she was introduced to them? Yes. So this is actually a really interesting sort of adjacent plot line. The the Davises were a Southern family, from what I understand, or at least um, Alden Davis uh, fought with the Confederacy in Louisiana, I believe. And then he came to Massachusetts and married a woman from there. And they opened a 
not exactly a hotel, but like an air, like an Airbnb, a regular <laughs> bed and breakfast. And the the town did not very much like the Davises, not only because of the Civil War, you know, he fought with the South, um, which is bad, but also because he they were part of a Christian offshoot group that it was essentially a cult. And one of the leaders, and Alden was a big member of this church. He's not the person that I'm about to tell a story about. Alden is the the patriarch of the Davis family. But that family was a part of this essentially cult, religious sect, I guess we could say. Um, and the, the leader of that group was hearing messages from from directly from God, which we know now that's Old Testament God. That's not the way it happens anymore. If, you, if God is talking to you directly, it's most likely a psychological issue. That's not the way they looked at it, though. So when God told him that he needed to murder his youngest child and that she would be resurrected, he did it. And then he called everyone over to the house, all of his congregation, and was like, this is what God told me to do. So now we wait. And all of the congregation was like, um, no, that's not what we do. This is very bad. You killed your little girl. And Alden Davis was like, actually, no, if he heard the voice of God telling him to do that. I mean, that's what happened with Abraham. So the, the town basically ostracized the Davises for him backing this, this cult leader. Understandably, understandably ostracized him, not understandably backing that behavior. Um, so also, just to kind of close that narrative out, um, that uh, the man who did murder his child was sent to an insane asylum, not the same one that Jane was sentenced to, which I thought would have been a really nice, tight little bow, but that's not the way that real life works. So that's not the way it happened. But, I mean, nobody really wanted to deal with the Davises because even though they were nice, like on a personal level, they were like, no, you can't, mm-mm, that's not an okay thing that we're not okay with that. So, they opened um, a hotel so that everyone from the city would come stay there in the summer because so, it was nicer. And that's how Jane came uh, came into contact with this family is she also wanted to leave the city during the summer um, and her patients would sometimes go there. And then she ended up renting a room from them. And I believe sometimes a whole cottage, but sometimes a room. And then uh, they liked having her there so much that they were like, we'll give you a discount. And then that's when she ran up that huge debt but uh, the another thing to consider is like when the matriarch Maddie Davis went to get the money back from Jane, that's when Jane poisoned her. And then she came back to the Davis home to take care of the rest of the family in her absence and then just picked them off one by one, which <laughs> is also very upsetting. And that's that's when um, the detectives were finally like, I think these are not coincidences because they all died in such close succession and from uh, similar symptoms. They didn't diagnose them the same way, but they the symptoms were similar. When we come back from a brief break, Jane Toppin finally gets caught. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. 
The next day, when Raw lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Back again. Was Jane using strychnine at this point? Um... So strychnine wasn't necessarily um, her her kind of cocktail of choice. She she typically used morphine and atropine. Sometimes she'd throw some strychnine in there just for you know to change it up, I guess. Um, but but yes, that is how she. Uh, it was a consistent mo. One of the daughters, the Davis daughters, who died. Her father in law. One of the reporters who came to interview him told him it was strychnine, and he was like, that doesn't sound right. I mean, she is too smart to get caught using something like that. Um, I always thought it – I mean, like, I, based on what I've read in the papers, I thought it would be morphine and atropine. And the reporter was like, oh, holy shit, that's exactly right. Let me go take this back to the, <laughs> the people who are, like, the medical examiners. Um, and that was just his intuition. Like, he was just a grizzled – old sea captain who had been around and seen some stuff. And he was like, that doesn't, that doesn't sound right to me. And he told them that what was exactly uh, the case, which honestly, like he was one of my favorite characters to write because I just got the sense that he was so tired of people not having good sense that it was, I don't know. I just really enjoyed that character and that chapter and writing it. Also, it was a big relief to write about, to write with a person who is like fundamentally good (laughs) at at the center of it. It's not nearly as emotionally taxing. I'm sure you know too. Oh, it's great to have a heroic character to write about amidst all of the, the carnage, right? Truly. Yes. I can remember like I'll go out with my friends and they'd be like, what's wrong? And I'll be like, well, I just killed four people. Like, I don't feel great. <laughs> not, I mean, of course I didn't, but, you know, writing about it, having to get down in there is sort of like dreaming that you accidentally hit a puppy in your car or something. Like you didn't do it, but it feels like you just feel bad about it later, you know? Yeah. It, it can get heavy sometimes. Yeah. Uh, even just doing this podcast, I'm constantly reading and talking about murder and death. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. So she was arrested. Um, How did she react to her arrest, to her interrogation? Uh, Did she remain cool? Um, She didn't confess right away. No, um, she didn't confess until I think after she was convicted. Guilty but insane, which is wild. Um, Right. (laughs) Uh, but so she, she was staying with a couple of her friends when the detective showed up and were like, uh, we're arresting you. And I think, I think she was allowed to pack a bag and change clothes. And she was upset that the detectives wouldn't give her any privacy to change clothes. 
And they were like, obviously, lady, like, we're not going to just be like, yeah, go ahead into the back of the house. Like, no, get your things. Let's go. Um, but she maintained her innocence um, throughout until until she was convicted. And she actually had a lot of letters of support from her former patients and employers saying that they knew that there was no way she could have have done anything that they're, they were accusing her of. And I think hiding behind that, she kind of believed her own lies for a while of like, I didn't do it. And then whenever she was convicted, guilty but insane and sentenced to, or I'm not even sentenced, but like committed to an insane asylum. I mean, according to the newspapers, which of course we take with a grain of salt based, I mean, based on the newspapers that this came from, she was happy about it because she was like, well, I'm not crazy. I, I knew what I was doing. Like I knew I was killing those people. It's not like I didn't know, like I'm not crazy, um, which is even more disturbing <laughs> than, than her being like, no, I did. I have no idea what I've done. She, she definitely knew what she was doing. Yeah. And so I guess you could say that she was kind of cool about it because that's the level of narcissism that we were working with. Right. She'd gotten away with it for so long that she felt invincible, right? Uh, yeah, I think so. Especially when, you know, you have a lawyer coming to, def- like for a child, a friend from your childhood who believes in, in your innocence so strongly that he'll defend you for free. Like that's how confident <laughs> that he was. And that's how believable she was. She was very charismatic. Jolly, they said. So the, the trial took place in November of 1901, right? I believe so, yes. Um, how long did the, the trial last and were there any surprises? So the court records were actually kind of hard to find. I did find them. I went to Massachusetts. I can't remember which library it was. It was gorgeous. Everything in Massachusetts, the architecture is just amazing. Um, but I, I went there and I was like, hey, I need the, you know, the, the court proceedings from this case and the woman working there was like, I don't think we have that. That's way older than we keep. And I was like, I'm from Georgia. I need you to look really hard. Like I flew up here for this specifically. Cause you know, they, when, they, when it's like historical records, they can't send it out. Of course not. Like what if it got lost? They can't photocopy it cause it could get damaged. So she found it and it was, it was, it was pretty short. Like it, it didn't have all of the courtroom procedural drama that I think of, like it wasn't like a time to kill where you have like word for word, everything everyone said, uh, which would have been very satisfying to read. And I, and I wish of course that we did have that, but the, Oh, one thing that surprised me is the day that I was looking at it was one was the day that one of the testimonies happened. And I was like, okay, I know that this is just a coincidence, but I hate it. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's the same day. So that was terrible. But uh, I think the the biggest surprise in the uh, in hearing about it was about was from um, the the matron who ran the the prison the the women's prison was just like a one cell and how and this wasn't in the in that uh, document but she talked about how um, she was always very courteous that Jane was always very courteous to her and she had people send her flowers and it was just really hard to reconcile that that was the same person. 
Like that was very unnerving to me. Like the the woman who, who who takes care of the prison also does not want to believe that 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 person is capable of doing something that monstrous. And I mean, I get it. Like we we see people who we who we feel are are good people, even now, you know, accused of horrible things, and you kind of have to believe it but also you don't want to like, but they're so nice. Like they've done so much good. Like you, how can that both things be true, but they can. So that was probably one of the most unnerving. And then how all the whole town kind of turned out to hear the verdict on the courthouse steps. That was interesting. Who, who was she tried for killing? Which of her victims? Um, the, the Davises is the one that they, and I think it was, I think it was, it was one of the daughters, but because she was in, in great health. It wasn't, it wasn't Genevieve. It was the other one. How did period newspapers portray her? Was she looked at as a monster? Yes. Once they realized she had done it up until then, um, they kind of depicted her as like matronly and, fun to be around and not really a threat because like they, they kind of body shamed her even for the Victorian time. Uh, we talked about how much weight she had gained and stuff, but she was also like very attractive. Like people liked being around her. So partly that. And then once she was arraigned, they, they really just focused on the details of like what fabric her dress was and that she wore a high collar, which is very like red carpet sounding, right? Like what is she wearing to her trial? Like that makes all the difference, which I just, that's so interesting to me that that is still a thing like so many years later. And then of course, like in her confession, which I believe has been influenced by not just her, it's definitely like she talks in such a ruthless way that it's, it's hard to believe, even if you want to believe it, that she would say it like that. What was the confession? Um, just the things that she said about the, the terrible true confession of Jane Toppin. It's actually, if y'all have the hardcover book, it's, the, it's part of the cover. And it's also like the, the, um, the front matter, like the white pages that would be white is like part of that actual document, which is super dope. And I'm really happy with that design. Um, but it's, uh, her terrible true confession. And she, she just, she says things that are, uh, it's very like bond villainy where it's like, and here was my whole evil plan that it just doesn't seem like she would say, even if it was true. And even if she felt like that, like, for example, um, probably if I had gotten married and had children, then I wouldn't have killed all those people. Like that just seems very like, where do we, what? (laughs) That doesn't make any sense. Um, Which I mean, that very well could have been the case, but it seems like it would have cropped up somewhere before 35 deaths. Um, But just things like that, that are just kind of incongruous. She she claims she was jilted by a lover uh, uh, or a potential lover earlier in her life, and that's what turned her bad. What Was that basically, in, in essence, what, what she was saying? I, I think that is what she blamed it on, but I don't know that that's the whole truth, and I don't think that she would have known either. Um, she was jilted at the 
Um, she was engaged and then that man like married someone else suddenly. So that can't have felt good, of course, especially because she was of working class and he wasn't. He was a little bit um, more affluent than she was. But yeah, so that's kind of what she blamed it on. Like she would have said, like, I, she said, like, I, I wouldn't have had time to do it if I had been married and had children. <laughs> Which I guess that's kind of true, but also no, that's that's sort of like blaming your bad behavior on something else. And I just, I feel like with, like I said, uh, or kind of said a, a minute ago, as narcissistic as she was, it just seems like she wouldn't have passed the buck onto something that she couldn't control because she was so all about control. Right, right. Yeah, yeah for sure. Speaking of relationships, after she killed her foster sister Elizabeth, didn't she scheme to get together with Elizabeth's widowed husband? Yes, which is atrocious and just in life should not happen. But yeah, she did. Um, And I don't even think it was so much about him because to hear her describe him, he was like not her speed really. But um, he had all of the top end stuff. Like all of the stuff ended up going to him because it went first to Elizabeth and then she died and then he had, you know, all of her inheritance. So it it seemed like that. And then also a way to twist the knife posthumously in Elizabeth. Um, Metaphorically, she did not stab her. But yeah, she did try to seduce him. She made him sick and then tried to seduce him and then tried to blackmail him by saying she was pregnant. And he was like, "Um, that's literally impossible on many levels. And so then she, when that didn't work, it was kind of her last ditch effort. And then she tried and failed twice to complete suicide, which is super devastating. But yeah, he he was like, get out of my house. He was having none of it once he realized that. And he he wasn't going to throw stones, so to speak, but could have and, and probably should have. And probably if he had, would have saved several other lives. If, if just anyone had spoken up about it. And that's, you know, honestly, that's kind of what the big takeaway from writing this book was for me is like uh, early intervention is so important. Like if you see something going wrong or going awry in someone's childhood, you know, it takes a village <laughs> to raise a person and we're all some somewhat culpable for people around us. Like if, if you can help, you should help. That's just how we should live. And, and at any step in this horrific journey, if, if someone like if someone had just said, hey, uh, so this happened, it did happen, I will do it, I will say it on the stand under oath, I think that things could have turned out very differently for a lot of people. And of course, not to blame the victims, like that's very, very difficult to do, as we talked about before, but that's the biggest takeaway is like, what's, uh, what is the bystander effect of like everyone thinks someone else is going to call in the gunshot is it's very real. Oh, Um, oh, like the the Kitty Genovese case. Yeah. I mean, that happens all the time with things like, like you uh, pass a wreck on the, on the freeway. Right. And someone else has probably already called it in. So you don't bother. Um, That happens on such a small scale as well. I don't think that the, that Jane had to end up like this. I think it was that she made a choice and that her surroundings let, her make that choice if that makes sense yes it does okay good because <laughs> i was like i'm not trying to absolve her of the guilt but i think we can all take some responsibility and like if you see something weird tell someone about it tell someone about it who can who can potentially help 
even if you can't personally. So she was required to face a panel of psychiatrists, alienists. Uh, what did they ultimately conclude about her mental state? So um, as far as the process went, I think that, I mean, we know now we're learning so much about mental health just on a regular basis, even now that they didn't know nearly as much as we know now about why people do the things they do, um, how to prevent them, that uh, something that happened in your childhood can affect you well into your adulthood. So I think they were essentially examining her daily behaviors, which looked on the outside fairly normal, according to the matron at the prison, right? Like she, you know, wanted to make her dress, which was in needlework and needlepoint at the time was a very accepted uh, pastime for women. She liked having attention. She liked talking to people. She liked telling stories. And I think that from what I remember of reading the, the historical documents, that the more they observed, the more they noticed that she was just making stuff up all the time about like who she had talked to recently. And I'm going a lot of off of memory here, so I could be wrong about some of this, but, but yeah, it's like she believed the lies that she was telling. Like they, they saw it not happen and she was telling them that it had (laughs) with total confidence that she was telling the truth. So I think that's why they ruled her guilty, but insane and why they stuck to that verdict conviction. So Jane Toppin believed that once she was committed to an asylum, she would be able to convince people there, charm them into believing that she was sane, and then they would release her back into society. Yes. um, When she got the sentencing that she was going to an asylum, she was like, oh, I'll be out here in no time. Like, I'm, I'm not... I'm not crazy. I have been holding down a job. (laughs) Like, I'm fine. They will see that I am normal. And this this part is actually pretty sad for her. Um, Even though she is a monster, it is also sad because she was one of the best behaved patients and she often helped or wanted to help the nurses at the asylum do their job because she was a nurse. So they all liked her. And then she... Uh, gradually disintegrated into dementia later in her life where she would have the outbursts for reasons that people couldn't tell, insisted that people call her Honora, which she had not gone by since childhood. But but yeah, uh, when she first got there, she was like, yeah, I'm going to be out of here in a couple months. This is nothing, like <laughs> jokes on you <laughs> type of thing. And it ended up being over 30 years. Yeah. She uh, lived well into old age at the time. I want to say she, I believe she passed in the mid-1930s. So um, she was was in that asylum as long as her adult life beforehand, pretty much about the same amount of time. So I want to ask you about the way you chose to write your book. Okay. It's not written in a traditional nonfiction style. Mm-hmm. Would you share why you chose to write your book the way you did? Oh, yeah, that's a fun question. So I actually, before I decided to write this book, I wanted to read it. Um, so when I heard the story on that podcast, I tried to find a book that was written the way that I wanted to write it. 
or that I wanted to read it. And I found Harold Schechter's book, Fatal. And I read it and I was like, oh, this is, this is lots of information about her, but it doesn't really have the causal nature that I like in a narrative. So I'm going to, I'm going to write that. And as I was researching and outlining the book, I came to the realization that Jane really never does have very much of a voice. And we can't really know, even if she told us, which she kind of does, um, why she did the things that she did, because she's not trustworthy either. And I thought that that was the, like, portraying her story through multiple points of view was the most authentic way to tell the truth about her, because that's really all that we have evidence of, is other people's observations of her. There is one chapter from her perspective, which was probably the hardest one to write because um, not only because of what we talked about before, which is like, it's just, it gets real heavy to think about someone that depraved for that long, but also because hurt people hurt people. You know, like we heard that cliche so many times because it's true. Like she was definitely a monster for sure. I'm not trying to say that she wasn't, and I'm not trying to absolve her of any of the things that she's done, but uh, she was also a hurt person. And so I don't know, she just kind of puts all of her responsibility into the fact that she was wronged and it's not fair to anyone to do that. Um, but that, that's, I guess in a nutshell, why I chose to write it this way, because it felt like the most authentic and I felt like I could get the, the most accurate truthiness of the story in the book that way. Yeah, and sometimes when I couldn't, I couldn't write it better than it was already written. We just, we we used and credited the whole newspaper article that it originally came from, because I couldn't do it any better than what it was already written as. Yeah. So tell us about your podcast. Tell us about your website and how people can buy your book. Okay. Um, so first thing you asked about is the podcast. I co-host it with two of my best friends. Um, one of them works in elder care and the other uh, used to work with me in mental health. And I also am a professor, but used to teach English. Um, and so we have all of, uh, we have all the different perspectives on horror movies where we, we both analyze them and make fun of them. Kind of like we were saying about like, nobody thinks it's really funny, but we get the joke. So we're all in it together. Um, and that the podcast is called everything trying to kill you. And we talk about all different horror movies from all across time. Like we, this, I mean, we just did an episode on Jurassic Park, which is technically not horror, but I blame it a lot on the soundtrack. <laughs> Why it's not horror? Because it is a creature feature, if you think about it. Right. Um, and then we're doing like Horse Girl. Um, we've done The Exorcist. So we really run the uh, the gamut of horror movies. Um, and, and that's really fun for us. Um, sure. So that's one thing. I also have a an author website. Um, I do some freelance writing about horror movies and some essays, um, some nonfiction. I soon have one coming out with narratively about the uh, woman named Solitude who led a slave rebellion in Guadalupe when she was eight months pregnant. So I'm really excited for that one. And I also, uh, as we, as you know, if you've made it this far in the podcast, um, wrote a book called America's First Female Serial Killer. 
Jane Toppin and the Making of a Monster. And you can buy that anywhere you like to buy books. I like to recommend that you buy it at your local independent bookstore because that helps the most people. But everywhere has it. If you love Amazon or you just need it immediately, you can get it on Amazon. You can get it on uh, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million. And hopefully, and this is amazing, like if you go into your into your independent bookstore nearby or online if they're doing that, um, they can get it for you if they don't have it. Um, and that might also lead other people to it, which I would love. Uh, and then, of course, you have the bookshop online as well. And that's America's First female serial killer. And I'm Mary Kay. And I had a great time talking about this book with you, Eric. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. No, it it was fun. Well, thanks again. Uh, Very enlightening. I really appreciate it. I'm really glad that uh, we got in touch and made a connection. And I'm excited to, to share this with the world. So thank you so much. Again, I have been speaking to Mary Kay McBrayer, Her book is called America's First Female Serial Killer, Jane Toppin and the Making of a Monster. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.